Well, good morning, everyone. How is everyone doing? Good, love the snow. A very, very pretty morning. Yes, you can have a white Christmas. A white February. A white May. <laughs> well, before, before we get started, I just wanted to read this to you guys before we pray. Uh, around the world, happenings in China. Chinese government demolishes a 3,000-seat megachurch. Communist authorities destroyed a 3,000-seat megachurch over a recent weekend using a large excavator to tear apart the building as members watched helplessly. The large building was located in the province of Anhui in the eastern part of the country. According to China Aid, which monitors religious persecution in the country, the congregation was part of China's officially recognized network of churches, which means probably the recognized state church, not an underground one. So that means that the communist officials lacked the proper legal paperwork to order the destruction China Aid reported. This is yet another clear example showing the escalation of religious persecution today by Chinese communist regime, said Bob Fu, president of China Aid. The total disregard of religious freedoms protection as enshrined in the Communist Party's own constitution tells the whole world President Xi is determined to continue his war against the peaceful Christian faithful. So, just something to think about. A lot of people just watch their church building be torn apart on the other side of the world. And uh, I thought it was fitting. I actually read that this morning when I was kind of covering back down on notes this morning. And one of our sections talks about it talks about love, and then the verses right after this, in verse 14, it says, Bless those who persecute you, is our next verse right after this. So, uh, bless and do not curse. And then verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And so I believe there's a time where we should pray for our brothers in China to bless those who persecute them and to not curse them and to weep with them because I'm sure many had great turmoil over the issue and many others in China have been persecuted uh, in more extreme measures. But even in all the persecution since 1949, how has a Christian church grown in China to the Lord's blessing? Yes. Uh, a common Christian phrase is the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's the next seed. Jesus said if a grain falls to the ground, it dies, but then it sends up a new shoot. Vivid imagery of God's plan to use persecution oftentimes to create changed hearts in many, many other individuals. And there's, there's rich stories of that throughout church history. 
in Europe and across the, uh, the world. So let's pray this morning. Lord, we lift up to you uh, those in China specifically this morning, those that just had their church building torn apart, though not their souls or their lives. We ask that you would strengthen them, comfort them, and that we would weep with those that are weeping, but we would also rejoice, as Peter did, and the apostles, that when they, after they'd been beaten by the Sanhedrin, they went out rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And so we, we weep with those that are in sorrow, and if there are Chinese brothers that are rejoicing over the glory and the honor that they get to receive for being persecuted for Christ, we rejoice with them, as Peter did and the other apostles. Pray that you would strengthen this church, those people, they be even more rooted and grounded in the faith and your love and your truth, and that we would be grateful for the things that we have and that we would use our time wisely to build ourselves up and to pray for others to be built up and be devoted to prayer. God, as we look to uh, this section of Scripture this morning, help us to dwell upon what you said and that it would take root in our lives to the glory and honor of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we, it is in his name that we pray that we may honor and glorify you. Amen. Start with reading Romans 12, 9 through 13. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. The only joyful life, satisfying and beneficial life is the obedient life. A life lived in control and discipline under the principles of Jesus' words will bring joy and heavenly productivity on this earth and in heaven. Godliness promises benefits in this life and the one to come. 1 Timothy 4.8 Will your life on earth and in heaven be benefited most by your living now? Will your life on earth and in future heaven be benefited most by how you live now, today and tomorrow, and however many more days the Lord gives you? Or will it be benefited minimally? President Teddy Roosevelt said this, the things that will destroy America are prosperity at any price, peace at any price, safety first instead of duty first, 
and the love of soft living and the get rich theory of life. Now, do you think that Teddy Roosevelt was already seeing that begin to happen in his day? Yes. Yes. Because with those good things, and as he, if, you, if you listen to the quote, it's not that prosperity is wrong. And it's not that peace is wrong. It's not that uh, having some soft living or being rich is entirely wrong. But what if, if it's first place, always, if it's at any price, and if it has to be all the time that you demand it like that, that's the problem. If you, if you give way to principles and how you make money, and you oppress the rich, or oppress the poor, so you can get rich, you are in danger of God's judgment. If you treat others poorly, it's a dangerous thing. Roosevelt was precisely right about America, and these vices hold true to be the antithesis of true, genuine Christianity. And I borrowed this from MacArthur. He had quoted the president in his commentary that I read. How will our theory of life and our values result in our living as Christians? Are we going to take the easy Christian road or the hard one? And Jesus said it like this. Narrow is the gate and narrow is the way. Not only is there a narrow entrance to the kingdom of heaven, there is a narrow way in which you live in the kingdom of heaven. But so many people are content to remain on the broad path of the world, living any which way you want or please, not convicted by the master's words, not pursuing discipline, a care for soft living and being happy and content all the time is idolatry that will lead to error and ruin of your life. And genuine, heavenly prosperity, which is godliness and reward in heaven future for a servant to whom the master can say, good, well done. You lived a faithful life, an obedient life, the narrow way life that I commanded you to live. So let love be without hypocrisy appears right after the list of gifts we covered down in our previous section. It should be noticed that in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he also upheld and emphasized <coughs> over all the spiritual gifts the imperative and the mandate of love. And he called love the greatest gift. Faith, hope, and love, all these, that, the one that will remain will be love. It is the greatest thing. It's the greatest gift. It's the greatest way. Like in Corinthians 13, Paul here explains what love looks like. And I believe that comes through. Love without hypocrisy. And then he describes a bunch of actions and way that can, how that can look. So in the Greek, the, the verb be does not exist. And love is the noun, and it's simply love 
without hypocrisy. And this is what Douglas Moo says. He says that Paul has in mind to show us what the love without hypocrisy looks like. So love is the love is the subject being looked at here, and then there's a bunch of other verbs after. We do love, but what does the love look like? And then how do we do in accordance with that? I believe this is very Pauline because that's exactly what he said in 1 Corinthians. He said, this is love, and then he explains what it looks like. The whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. I also find it interesting that uh, love is on Paul's mind for all Christians after discussing giftedness here in Romans 12. All the gifts are mentioned, and then he follows up with love. Just as he did in Corinthians, so what that looks like. So agape, agape love is a love that is sacrificial and caring for others' needs, no matter the personal cost to the giver. God is the supreme example of agape love, costly, sacrificial. He gave his son. He crushed his son on the cross so we could have eternal life in his son. Could you imagine caring so much for a rebellious criminal that you would slay your own child so that criminal could go free and receive your child's deserved inheritance? How many of you would do that? If you were the judge. Well, God did this for us when he crushed Christ on our behalf. And Christ laid down his life willingly for us so that we could gain things that we do not deserve. We receive the benefits of beloved children from the Father because of Jesus' worth and value to him. And he paid and satisfied God's wrath against us in full and abundantly lavished upon us grace upon grace and treasures in heaven and joy that we do not deserve to touch or taste. Is it too much to ask that we learn to love like our Father in heaven or to obey Him and the Lord who laid down His life for us? Would it be too much to ask? Agape love is a sincere love, a genuine love. It's a without hypocrisy or bent motive kind of love. Agape love gives to bless others. Our principle number one, our love must become more like God's. And Paul gave us Romans 1 through 11 to look at that love and see what it is. And to motivate our, li our living and our thinking. Our love should not be fake. It should be sacrificial and genuine. First thing we learn about love is that love hates evil. God is love, therefore he must hate evil. And so must we. So must we. True love, because it is love, cannot enjoy or take pleasure in anything that would destroy love. For example, if I love babies, I must hate that which would destroy babies. If I love babies, I must hate abortion. and those who commit that. God will 
crush all who do not know his son or reject his son. Love cannot look on evil with any favors. Paul says this in Corinthians 13, defining love. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. So if you are a loving person, a Christian person who says that you have the love of God, a true love like God's will be a love that never rejoices in what's wrong or bad. You are not happy or pleased with that in any way. You will never make an excuse for sin or for sinners, for your own sin or for other sinners out there. You have to hate love. And you can't be biased toward yourself or toward others in their sin. God says this, There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. Somebody please turn to Proverbs 6 and read for us. Proverbs 6. Sixteen. You can read the Ten Commandments as well. You can, you can go through scriptures and find things that God hates, that He abhors, that are not pleasing to Him. And the command here by Paul is for you to be just like God and to hate what God hates. So as you read through scripture, as you study scripture, embrace the hating of what is evil and wrong because it's the, the exact opposite of true love. True love cherishes what's good, which is the next verse. Cling to what is good. True love hates what's evil and loves what's good and right. Proverbs 16, or Proverbs 6, 16 is a good place um, to not be like. Strive not to be like that. Guard your tongue. Uh, guard your mind. Be humble. Do not be haughty in spirit or in mind. Like I said, genuine love does not make an excuse for evil things or the behaviors of oneself or in others. Love recognizes evil. If you are mature, if you have a mature love and a mature mind, you will be sensitive to all kinds of evil in this world. The more mature you get as a Christian, If you say that you're growing in love, if you say that you're maturing in love, then your sensitivity to sin should be growing according to what this text says. You should be hating and recognizing evil for what evil is more and more at a more and more detailed level of being able to distinguish how sinful sin is at a, even the smallest level. If you are maturing in love and you're boasting that you're maturing in love, you will be discerning evil more and more detailedly and hating it more because it's the opposite of God. And as you grow in your, in your understanding of what love is as well, you'll have a greater recognition of God's holiness, His character, and His attributes and what He says is good. And you will praise what is good and cling to what is good. 
Paul labored constantly to beat his remaining sinful flesh down and run his race, this earthly life we live, for God with intentional, fervent dedication to live a life well-pleasing to the masters who bought him. Paul says this in Romans 7, and in the hate languages used here by Paul in his own life. Verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Paul hated sin when it crept up in his life, and he called it out for what it really is. So should we. If our love is growing, we should recognize personal sin, call it out, and strive to work against it. <coughs> 1 Corinthians 9 says this, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Talking about the Olympic Games. Run in such a way that you may win, Christian. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Every area of your life. Paul is talking about. Rope it all in to exercising and controlling, building self-control, competing as a good athlete. These athletes, these athletes do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable, speaking about the future in heaven. Therefore, I, Paul, run in such a way, not without aim. He's very intentional. He's aiming for what he wants to do with regard to sin and with regard to what's right and filling his time with no more sin and doing what's good and right. I box in such a way, not beating the air aimlessly, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, shared the gospel with others, taught others, and lived a life, a Christian life before others, I myself will not be disqualified from the wreath in heaven. Genuine love hates unrighteousness, pursues self-discipline, and in all cases must avoid evil with great vigor and tenacity. We are commanded to flee from evil, not to play with it, not to make an excuse with it, not to get all up close and cuddly with it. The Bible says that it's unwise to get really close to the world and think that you might remain unstained. First Corinthians 6, Paul says this, Flee from immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Paul says this to Timothy. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Paul is telling Timothy, another pastor, be content if you just have food and clothes. Why? Because the apostles were homeless and beaten times without number. And they went around not charging people, trying to give them the gospel. Well, at least Paul did. Sometimes he took funds, other times he did not because he wanted to give people an example of how to live. Contentment is a big thing. The desire for riches and for wealth and ease and soft living 
we can all succumb to. Paul says this, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, not money itself. But some, by longing for it, longing for that money, longing for riches, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Flee from these things, Timothy. What do you need to run away from? Run away from not being content. Run away from not being happy if you have a meal in your belly and some simple clothes. Wow, that's really hard. <laughs> I can't imagine with only having that because I have so much personally. I have, a, I have a large home, I have a wife, I have children, I have lots of clothes. They're very nice. They're very nice. Chance <laughs> has picked out my wardrobe for me or made suggestions. <laughs> Not too much. I went to men's warehouse and the lady was like, you're going to wear this. And I was like, okay. <laughs> but Paul was beaten. I mean, and he, he learned contentment. Do you know when he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? Do you know when he said that? What the context was? It was about him learning the secret to that phrase which so many Christians memorize. It's learning to be content. He said, I've been hungry without food, and I've learned to have much, much food and much contentment and joy with others. And he's like, the secret is to treasuring Christ above having food or not having food. And Paul really didn't have food sometimes. He didn't own a home. Paul went around as a vagabond preacher, wasn't worried about gaining worldly wealth, was worried about heaven. It's not wrong to have any of these things. It's not, it's not wrong to, uh, to increase your means and your job or to pursue money. It's wrong to love it for money itself and to not be sharing and to not be caring of others. And it's wrong to grumble, to have a negative attitude if you have very little. You're not trusting and resting in what God has given you, and you're not grateful. You're telling God, you've been a poor sovereign over my life when you grumble. Paul didn't have food. What do we have to complain about? What do we have to complain about? Absolutely nothing. I guarantee everyone in here has had food in the last 24 hours is doing well. We have much to be thankful for. God is love, therefore he hates evil. All things that are evil that would corrupt a pure love. Hate evil, flee from it, don't play with it, don't make an excuse for it. Evil is like a snake. When you see a venomous snake in the field, do you get up real close and say, oh, look, this cute little cuddly thing, I'm going to pick it up? Okay. That's right, Ragnar. So why would Christians want to get really close to enticing sin in the world? When you see evil in the world, why would you come up really close to people in sinfulness and think that you can make a difference? You have to be really careful how you do that. Be really careful with sin. 
Be really careful. Job made a covenant with his eyes. How careful are you putting into your mind what you see? Billy Graham wouldn't go in an elevator with a woman alone in buildings. He didn't even want a flirtatious glance to be a possibility. Now that seems extreme to some of us. But I'd rather be on that end than the other one and expose myself to sinful desires or lusts. Cling to what is good. If we hate evil and we flee from it, we are running to the opposite. We are running to the opposite. The things which are noble, virtuous, and good. True repentance always has an element of leaving evil practices and behaviors and filling our time with something else. Genuine repentance is a turning away from evil and pursuing something else. First Thessalonians, Paul talks about the Thessalonians turning away from their vain idols and serving and worshiping the one true God. And that was their whole life. A turning away from pagan festivals, pagan doings, and becoming totally different Christians in character, walk, and nature. Walking a totally different life in a totally different direction. And that's what repentance is. Walking the other way. Walking in what's good. Turning away from what's evil and going in the opposite direction. Jesus emphasized loving God and loving others. Pray, forgive, reconcile, give your money, give your time, serve others, encourage people. Trust in his words. Man shall not live by bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus was tempted and he had no food for 40 days. He gave us an awesome example of being content and of trusting and resting on God's word always and of using scripture against sin when it tempts us. God says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Cling to what is good. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. Where can you find some righteous things to do and to think about? Well, we're getting to it. It's right here. <laughs> Tough crowd today. Tough, <laughs> tough crowd. We didn't know if you were looking for... <laughs> I'm serious and Chance says I need to use humor. <laughs> I do use humor, but I'm really dry. I'm, I'm, I'm very dry humor kind of guy. If I give the slightest grin, it's like hilarious to me. Like, <laughs> I think that's hilarious if I kind of just... <laughs> that's really funny to me. Like That's how you know like I'm laughing inside. <laughs> Hunger and thirst after the things of God. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. So here we're getting to it. What does this look like? What is this love that hates evil and clings to, pursues, and walks after love? So we're fleeing from evil, we're hating evil, and we're clinging, pursuing, and walking after love. Right away... We can be devoted to one another. Hey, there's Christians in this room, yes? Amen. How much more should we be devoted to one another? You want to do what's good? You want to fill your time with running away from evil things? Pursue life in the church more. 
Be sure you and Chance didn't talk beforehand because it's lining up with the sermon. <laughs> the you know what? There's you there's been away. a lot of our yeah. There's yeah. a lot. Of, Pastor Bill says there's really only ten things that can be said from the Bible, and they're always repeating themselves. <laughs> I'm like, well, maybe there's more than that, but the themes all interlink. <laughs> It fits perfectly because you said, how do we do that? How do we fill that in? And when the challenge was to be imitators of Christ, and how did he do that? And it is seeking to look to serve one another. Yes. So devoted. The word I want you guys to key in on here is devoted. And this is, this is the thing. When you assess your Christian life, when you look at yourself in the mirror, or when you look at the mirror of God's word, are you, are you characterized as a devoted person? Would you give yourself that assessment, that you're devoted, that you're locked on? And obviously, for every single one of us in this room, especially Pastor Chance, he could be devoted more. That was really funny. That was supposed to be funny. See, that was my dry humor. That was my dry humor. Okay, another word. Give preference. Not, not Even in more detail of what this devotion looks like in Paul's mind, not only are you devoted with a brotherly, familial type of love, it goes one step further. You actually prefer, give preference to somebody else than yourself in the church. This is the attitude that it looks like. When you come in, you are humble. And you see, that keeps you from Proverbs 6, 16. Proud, proud and haughty eyes. If you prefer others and if you make it your ambition to show preference to others, you will stay away from the sin of being proud and haughty. You see how that works? You flee from one by pursuing the opposite. The opposite of being proud and haughty is by caring about others more than yourself. You see how that works? Flee from being haughty and pride by filling your time with caring more about others' well-being. I've appreciated what you've been carrying. Um, I've had a discussion with several different friends of the fact that, kind of like any time when you hear the adage of it, you can't just let go of a habit, you have to replace it. And I've heard you with this attitude, the more of Christ has to accompany less of the world. Yes. And I've really just been gripped by that, just thinking, what does that mean? Because sometimes we just pursue, but something has to go. And so I see the same thing here. Yeah, exactly it. So we are to lower ourselves and care about others. Take on the form of a servant like Jesus Christ, who left his highly honored position, took on human flesh, and came to serve men and to die for them. That is our example. One who does not deserve to be humbled, humbled himself and came and served washed people's feet that were dirty with sin. Died for them on a cross so they could be free from sin. To what degree are we striving to emulate Christ's likeness, his example, that kind of love? Genuine love is devoted, has a brotherly love, and gives preference to others above oneself. And that was with an attitude to honor the other individual. Another key word here. Not only are you giving a preference to somebody else and caring more about them, but the end goal is like, I want to honor that person. <coughs> I want to honor that person. 
Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Next portion of this section of scripture. Not lagging behind in diligence. Genuine love cultivates... We're going to end here. I have four more pages to go. Genuine love cultivates diligence. Okay, this is really important. I'm a military man. These type of terms are really important to me. Cultivating diligence and disciplining of one's time and body. We read that scripture from Paul about running like an Olympic athlete is the Christian life. Getting all things under your control, disciplining your body, similar language. Discipline of one's time, body, resources, talents, your mind. Being dedicated to living a love-saturated lifestyle doesn't just happen randomly. It doesn't just fall upon you. God's given you the power and the spirit that we learned about in Romans 6 through 8. Are you taking it up? Are you taking that power up and pursuing godliness? It doesn't just happen randomly. It requires an attitude of fervency, immediacy, and intentionality. When I was in special forces, I worked with men of great discipline and dedication. A good soldier cares solely for the commander and his orders. A good soldier is dedicated to the mission and considers it the greatest honor if he's given the opportunity to die in his commander's service. That was the Roman outlook. It was, a, it was the greatest military honor if you died in battle. And there are similar principles today hold true in our military. And it's a good example and analogy. Paul uses the soldier analogy in the Bible. It's, there's some good principles and analogies there. Should we not, should not we as those who are confident in the resurrection of our body, Okay, soldiers die, but we believe in the resurrection of our body. Okay, make this your conviction. You should go out boldly and live, ready to die for Christ, easily, because you're supposed to genuinely, truly be convicted that this life is not the end of life. And that eternity has started now. What, what should we fear? Should we fear man? Should we fear the Chinese government taking over the world? Should we fear death by sword? No, even though we can feel those things. Those of us who are confident of our resurrection body should be ready and willing to lay down our lives on mission for God. Shouldn't we strive to win this world for Christ, hate and crush evil in ourselves and others at every opportunity? not by killing others, not by preaching the gospel. We know death cannot conquer us. What or whom shall we fear? Let us fear the Lord and lay down our lives for his mission. I don't believe Paul or Jesus want us to live a mediocre or laissez-faire life. A Christian life is not to be random, aimless, haphazard. Maybe it'll get done someday, kind of an attitude. The church and the kingdom are built upon principled people, leading orderly, obedient lives, even lives unto death. Jesus' life being the cornerstone and example. 
the result of this thinking should be the more discipline, the more product achieved, the more of the kingdom achieved, the more of kingdom magnification and God magnification will be achieved in our lives. God commands us to excel at obedience and godly living for his glory. And this is my question for you. How will you orient your life as a soldier of Christ Jesus today and tomorrow? Turn with me back to the end of Romans 8. We'll, we'll finish with reading this scripture. Verse 35, Romans 8, 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? Just as it is written, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Our life should be lived passionately, zealously, with great aim and ambition for the Lord. And we should have no fear of man as we move forward in our Christian walk in life. And we should run away from evil and cling to what is good and pursue what's good all the time. If you die in the Lord's service, guess what? You'll be with him in paradise, and that's far better. That's far better. But let's encourage each other to be devoted to one another, give preference to one another for the other person's being honored. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your scripture that enlightens us. It gives us so many wonderful things to be and to do. Thank you for being the wonderful example. You are worthy of all praise. God, give us, give us a greater ambition and an aim to live for you passionately, focused on you and your kingdom. God, help us to have a vision for heaven and eternal things. That way the world will grow strangely dim to us and we will desire what is above. Amen. Amen.